A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron and welcome to the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. Now, you might think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. And well, yes, you would be right. But then again, so is everything else since the fall. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in and around the world of politics. This week, we'll be taking some time to reflect on the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Joining us to do that is Dr. Harry Hagopian, a former assistant general secretary of the Middle East Council of Churches, as well as former executive director of the Jerusalem Interchurch Committee, where he played a role in peace negotiations in the region. Today, he works as an international lawyer and consultant to several UK denominations on issues impacting the Middle East. But before we speak to Harry, over the past week, Storm Babette has hit the UK with wind and rain. 1,250 properties have been flooded and four people have tragically died at the last count. This storm has spread its chaos all the way from northeast Scotland, across to Shropshire, down to Derbyshire. Needless to say, it brings disruption in many mundane ways, too, including my usual train down to Westminster yesterday morning. I remember how Storm Desmond in 2015 devastated my communities in Cumbria. It left families in poverty, businesses bankrupted and children traumatised as 7,500 people lost their homes in the town of Kendall and around. It has been a long slog to get flood defences built in those towns and villages that were worst affected at the time and to ready our communities for the next inevitable set of storms. Storm preparation is a matter of good stewardship of our communities. It is a matter of protecting the most vulnerable in our communities. Those who are most at risk of being killed are so often the elderly and disabled. In a rich nation like the UK, these storms bring damage and death. But there is government support for infrastructure to be rebuilt and lives restored. Yet in poorer nations, these disasters, climate related or otherwise, can create catastrophes from which they never recover. Over the last few weeks, Afghanistan has suffered a series of earthquakes which killed at least a thousand people and in which a shockingly disproportionate 90% of the casualties are believed to be women and children. Entire villages in rural mountain provinces were flattened in a nation already beset by terrible suffering. A disaster like this only compounds the devastation. And you may remember how earlier this year, an earthquake in Turkey and Syria killed over 50,000 people. This scale of death alone is impossible to understand, but eight months on, hundreds of thousands of people are still living in tent cities. Permanent housing will only be available in the distant future, and safe, purified water is scarce. As with all these events, the news cycle moves on if it ever got there in the first place. The world's attention shifts to the next big story. We feel as if we're becoming desensitised to pain and suffering, consistently having to set aside our grief before we fully acknowledge the impact such awful events have on our collective well-being, leading to what I call compassion fatigue. Our culture doesn't have space for any lament that can't be summarised in 280 characters or less. But the Bible does. Many of the Psalms are cries to God from the depths of despair, and there's even an entire book called Lamentations. When Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, even though he knows that he's about to raise him from the dead, the Bible says that he wept. The original Greek translation implies that these were not a few silent tears, but audible, shaky sobs. Despite knowing the ultimate hope of resurrection, 
he allowed himself to be deeply moved and to express that fully. As Christians, we know that we're to cast our burdens onto Jesus and that God is redeeming all things. But that doesn't change the fact that in the here and now, there is so much suffering. We know God also grieves at these things because he loves every one of us, his creation and justice. We should take time to pray and lament in community with one another, remembering those who have been affected by disasters and crying out to God for justice. We should also remember that Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Of course, our ultimate comfort for creation's redemption will come when Jesus returns in glory. And Romans 8 gives us a real basis for solid confidence in this. But again, in the here and now, we have the miracle of being able to partner with God to steward his creation well. Those of us in politics can choose to plan ahead to protect people from extreme weather events. Good stewardship of our communities must involve protecting them now, before the next storm. For those further away in unimaginable suffering, I'd want us to protect and increase our international aid budgets. This money is not some sort of favour we do other nations out of goodness of our hearts. It's a tiny acknowledgement of our privileged position as a wealthy nation that is complicit in the state of the planet because of the exploitative sources of our wealth. The new cycle will move on, but our role is to hold those who suffer in our hearts, pray for them and make practical, even mundane decisions to protect them from whatever comes next. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Well, so to our guest today, Dr. Harry Hagopian. Harry, it's a wonderful blessing to have you with us. Tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to be with you on this program. I've never mucked any business before, Tim. So this is a first, first time for everything. <laughs> there is a time for everything. Um, I'm Armenian, as the name indicates. I'm a friend of Premier Christian Radio because I've worked with them in the past. I was born in Jordan. I grew up for my first years in Jerusalem. My family came from Jerusalem. And then I left and went and continued my studies in France. And then when it came to the time when I had to do my university studies after college, after the baccalaureate and everything, I decided to come and do my law degree here in the UK in Manchester. And uh, then after that, I was fortunate enough to be able to go into a doctorate in public international law. And since then, I've had a rather zigzagging uh, approach to work and life because I practiced, of course, as a lawyer. But then I decided I didn't want to continue with that. I moved into intellectual property rights with Tushros International in the MENA and Gulf region, which is interesting because when the uh, uprisings started in 2010-2011, uh, Tim, everybody was saying, oh, the Middle East, North Africa, what is that? Where is that? I'd done this. I'd seen this ages before because I used to go there for my legal work. After that, I was headhunted by the Middle East Council of Churches. I worked there as Assistant General Secretary. Then I was asked to go and join the Jerusalem churches for, uh, in order to uh, defend or handle their brief during the Oslo negotiations. So I did that for all 13 traditional churches, Orthodox, Catholic, and Reform. And then after that, went back to law practice, and now I'm happily ensconced 
in London looking at the misery and despair mm. of other parts of the world and feeling very, very lucky and thankful to God as well. Well, Harry, you, you touch upon there your experience in the Middle East. And I just want for our listeners to get from you a sense of, of your perspective about the context that has led up to the recent events in Gaza. Many people who may not be uh, as au fait um, about what's going on in Israel and Gaza at the moment uh, may have been very surprised, um, uh, appalled by the murders by Hamas. What was the context that led up to that? You know what, uh, Tim, I mean, I've been listening to the radio, watching the news channels on the telly, talking to people across Europe, and it seems to me that some of them think that history in the Middle East, or at least in the Israeli-Palestinian context, started on the 7th of October, mm -hmm. when there was that heinous, atrocious attack by Hamas militants into the what is known as the Gaza envelope, which is the borders Gaza proper, and mm. is controlled by Israel. And uh, history didn't start on the 7th of October. 7th of October was another symptom, a very painful uh, symptom, but a, system non a symptom nonetheless of what has been happening for at least four or five decades. And I have written about it in what I call my bubbles. And I've said that the main cause of all this is the occupation, the unending occupation that started in 1967 after the Six-Day War. And I was a little toddler, hardly out of diapers then. And I remember the Jordanian hawker hunters and the Israeli Mirage uh, planes uh, in the skies when the war was happening. And since then, gradually, the situation has deteriorated because... Palestinians have become more digitalized, they've become more savvy, they've become more demanding of their rights for freedom and justice. And this is uh, what has eventually led us to where we are today. Now, some people might say, Harry, you're trying to condone, you're trying to justify. I'm neither condoning nor justifying what happened on the 7th, but I don't condone and justify what's happened before and what's happened after the 7th, which is a lack of justice and the reality that there are two peoples and they are not viewed as equal. And the political situation, in my opinion, will not be resolved will not improve, will not have this breakthrough. I know this from my direct involvement with the Oslo and Taba negotiations, and that was political. Yes, I was representing churches, but it was a political uh, negotiations. It will not improve unless and until both peoples can claim that they have freedom and that they can actually live their own lives. So call it self-determination, call it uh, deoccupation, call it whatever you want. And the interesting thing there, Tim, and I know I'm leapfrogging into something major, is that it's not only a question of Jews against Muslims or Israeli Jews and Palestinian Muslims. The Arab Palestinians who live, the Christians who live in the Holy Land, in Jordan, in Israel, in Palestine, even that tiny, tiny little community of Christian Palestinians in Gaza, they would tell you exactly the same thing as others are saying from within the Palestinian community. That is the reality. And if we grip that reality, which nobody has, we might get somewhere.
And so many Christians will look at this conflict, this tragedy, and they will look at it maybe differently than if it was happening in another part of the world, basically because these are the lands where the prophets and Jesus and his disciples walked. Are we right or are we wrong to view this conflict differently just because it is, in inverted commas, the Holy Land? You know, it's a good thing. I was listening to the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who was giving interviews in Jerusalem uh, with both uh, the heads of churches and then with the victims of Israelis or those families whose uh, relatives are taken hostage. And he was talking about the land of the Holy One. And he was saying, how can this happen to the land of the Holy One? Well, what I think characterizes this tiny place, the Holy Land, which I think is a euphemism for Israel-Palestine, is not that it is any different from Ukraine, Afghanistan, uh, Kosovo, or any other place, but for the fact that this is a small land that has basically witnessed or been the cradle of three civilizations and therefore three religious traditions in different strengths and in different order maybe, but it is it speaks to all three traditions and they are monotheistic traditions. It speaks to Jews, because there is a long history uh, about it. It speaks to Christians, because as far as I'm concerned, and I speak as a practicing Christian, for me, uh, Jerusalem and Bethlehem are where the word was made flesh, and then where Jesus died and was resurrected in order to absolve us of our original sin. And in that sense, for me, it's very, very important. And it's equally important for uh, Muslims because it's the third uh, most important religious site uh, for their own uh, tradition and belief. So in a sense, that is what makes it exceptional. And it is that exceptionalism, which is actually the, the, the casualty of this conflict because people have higher expectations and each community is peddling its own uh, views on this. And you don't think then that there's a, a prophetic reason for Christians to favor the state of Israel or, or do you? No, I don't. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't for a simple reason. And this is where, and you know this quite well, Tim, yourself and Premier Radio knows this. And mm -hmm. I've had this experience with uh, uh, Marcus Jones, when we were doing a program ourselves called Middle East Matters, where we would talk, and we're both committed Christians, we both believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we both believe in uh, the uh, stories of the Bible, but we had different approaches sometimes to what it means, what this faith means. And I used to joke with Marcus, and Marcus is a friend, so I could allow myself to do that. I used to joke to him, I said, you know what, all your colleagues out there, outside the studio, they would think I come from Mars when I start talking about my Christian faith. And the, the reason for that is that many, many people across the Middle East, the whole Middle East, not only Palestine, but let's focus on Palestine and Israel, would tell you that for Palestinian Christians, the faith has a contextual theology that it should be read within the context of the reality within which those Christians are living. And it's not about the prophets of 3000 years ago. It's about what is happening today. And for that reason, they highlight 
the biblical traditions of justice and mercy, which are the words that come all the time, and they talk of a gospel of faith, of hope, and of love, and they say we're tired about the way that Western Christians constantly go in a different direction. And this is why I think we are all uh, bound together, whether we like it or not, because we've got one Jesus, but the way we see Jesus and the way we interpret our faith probably differs from one part of the world to the other. Hence, why all these documents, Kairos, Palestine, Kairos, the Middle East, all these are coming out saying, listen, guys, you are our brothers and sisters. Why can't you understand what we're going through? And of course, the reverse is true, because somebody here would say, you've got it all wrong. A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. We're talking to Dr. Harry Hagopian, former Assistant General Secretary of the Middle East Council of Churches. Harry, we talk about Christians in the Middle East. Um, in Gaza, are there many Christians in Gaza? And what kind of impact do they have? There aren't. And I was actually struck by the fact when one of the two churches uh, in Gaza, Tim, there is a Greek Orthodox church, St. Porphyrius, which is a third century, second century, I think, even very old. Let's put it that way. Mm. Very old historical church built by the Crusaders in the 1100s. And that church is the one that follows the Greek Orthodox Byzantine tradition. And then you have another uh, church, which is the Roman Catholic Church. Now put those two churches together, and in a population of well over 2.1, 2.2 million Gazan Palestinians, you have only 1,000 and something Christians. So mm. if you try to take your calculator out and make a percentage of 1,000 and something in 2.2 million, I think you would have so many zeros before you have a digit that you yeah. would lose track of it. But <laughs> these people are playing such a role in Gaza. And that role is what? Eight institutions that are Christian institutions, major institutions, hospitals, schools, old people's homes. The Middle East Council of Churches had one of his, its biggest programs for humanitarian assistance based in Gaza. So in a sense, what the Christians there are doing is not saying, oh, look at our numbers. Because frankly, between you and me, this business of numbers doesn't convince me too much when it comes to our faith. It's not the quantity, it's the quality. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that their witness is what matters. And we in the Middle East, we when we talk about uh, Christians, and I'm saying we because my original roots hail from there. Uh, when we talk about Christians, we talk about living by witness, showing how it's done. And this is what's being done. And those churches, those schools, those hospitals, those institutions are the ones that are sought after by everybody there. So when something happens there, uh, people uh, notice it. And of course, given the tensions sometimes that see so between Christians and Muslims in Palestine as much as anywhere else in the world, then automatically this factor comes into it. Look at Palestine post, not Gaza, the West Bank, where mm. people are forgetting to talk about the West Bank. You're also a politician. You know these things. Uh, in Gaza now, it's misery. 2,000 babies have been killed. So many, I don't know, about 160,000 houses have been demolished. Yet we don't talk about what's happening in the West Bank, where there is an unbelievable 
surge in settlement building. People mm. are dying. 80 people, 80 Palestinians have died by uh, right-wing settler colonialists. Why? The, the humanity, the rehumanization of this mm. conflict is one of the things that we need to do. And that's what I think our uh, our work as Christians is also part of. And so let's move forward on that. I mean, you were involved in the Oslo Accords, the discussions, yeah. uh, the, the peace talks, which were yeah. a degree successful in the early uh, 90s. What space is there for uh, reconciliation, non-violent reconciliation now? And what role could and should the church in the Middle East play in that? Okay, there, I'm going to answer your question, Tim, very quickly because I'm aware of time, but also in two compartments. Compartment number one, the if we, we take the start of history, which is a very simplistic way of doing it, as being 1967, when the Six-Day War happened and the occupation, and move forward, between 1967 and the late 1980s, early 1990s, there was a relationship of occupier and occupied, victim and victimizer, uh, happy and unhappy. In the early 1990s, as a consequence of the uh, conversations that were taking place in Scandinavia between uh, conflict resolution practitioners from the Israeli and Palestinian side, we suddenly had this famous Oslo uh, breakthrough. And that Oslo breakthrough made such a huge difference in the psychology of both Palestinians and Israelis. And I'll tell you how. Part of what I used to do when I was a second track negotiator representing the church's brief, I used to travel at least once or twice a month from uh, Jerusalem via Jericho to Amman in Jordan, because I used to work very closely with the then crown prince, His Royal Highness uh, Prince Hassan, the brother of the late King Hussein. And I used to go there and talk to him. I used to go there and talk to one of his institutions called the Royal Institute for Interfaith Studies. Before I the Oslo process started, the frowns, the, the, the behavior, the reaction, the chemistry between Palestinians and Israelis, as we crossed that bridge linking Israel to Jordan, was one of animosity, was one of caution, was one of dislike. Come the Oslo breakthrough, I was bowled over. I used to go and people, I speak Hebrew and I speak Arabic. So I used to speak Arabic with the Jordanians and Hebrew with the Israelis. And they would look at me and sort of say, Armeni, are you Armenian? Yes. So we would start talking and there was that caution uh, then. After 1990, when they started talking and trying to build a future, there were smiles all over. When the whole, the whole process broke down, and now the Oslo process is a much maligned process, as you know, everybody now heaps abuse on that uh, process, not knowing that at that time, it was what was viewed as a ray of hope. Uh, now, the same frowns, the same animosity, the same enmity, the same caution, the same exclusive uh, behavior has come back. So in a sense, there is what I'm trying to say in my own uh, circumlocutous way is that there is 
always scope for hope and there is always scope for peace. I genuinely believe that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have spent so much of my time with that. What would the churches be able to do? The churches are not politicians. Sometimes church leaders forget that, actually. They think they're politicians. They're not politicians. Their calling is somewhere else. What they should do is be catalysts, facilitators, bringing people together. And that's what the uh, Christians do, which is when you talk to people in that neck of the woods, they will tell you the Christian community is a tiny community. It used to be about 25% of the Holy Land. It's now only 2%. Uh, What they would tell you, the Muslims and the Jews, is that you guys could be the bridge. And what better way? I mean, I've heard this so many times. Christians are bridge builders. So in a sense, that's what the Christian churches would do. And that is what they try to do without actually forgetting their own origins and their own communities. That is also important. And so for those of us who are Christians and and not in the Holy Land and people listening to this this program um, and many who feel uh, desperately troubled, at least, about what is happening right now they don't feel enough they know enough to properly engage with this topic in a way that is sensitive to both israeli and palestinian historic and recent experiences how would you counsel a christian in the uk for example listening to this program to approach this issue by being open-minded by not actually taking sides and saying, no, 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 I know it, these people are right, these people are wrong. I've I've done conflict resolution work, I've uh, a lot of conflict resolution work, which is part of the reason why I was headhunted for the second track work brief. Uh, do, do not assume that you know, and do not assume that one party is right and one party is wrong, nor should you assume that two wrongs make a right. For instance, you shouldn't say that what happened on the 7th of October was wrong because we know it was wrong, we know it was a crime, we've condemned it, I've condemned it ad nauseum. But at the same time, you can't then stop and say, I don't know what's happening in Gaza, It's they have to be taught a lesson. I don't believe in that because I believe that everybody is uh, born in the image and likeness of God. And to actually revisit so much violence on uh, on Gaza is not a question of politics. It's a question of rage. Israel was dumbstruck, was shell-shocked on the 7th of October. That shock after 72 hours gradually turned into anger. The anger is palpable, understandable. Even the Israeli president now is shouting when he talks to people. But what we should do and what I've always tried to do in my own life when I've faced these problems, don't let anger turn into rage. Because the minute you turn it into rage, you lose control, you lose your center, and that leads to abuses. And that's what we're seeing today. Whether you call it collective punishment, whether you call it retaliation, it doesn't really matter. Those are political semantics. What needs to be done is these are human beings. Would you be willing to see this happen to your niece, to your nephew, to your brother, to your sister? That's the Uh, the benchmark that I use when I talk to people, knowing full well that there is something in our tradition called justice and love and mercy. And that's what we should apply. Mm. It seems the most um, 
Oh, I love your hymn. Not fully convinced, but you're letting me get away with not, it. Not a, no, not at all. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really thinking about one other thing I'd like just to pursue because we talk about the two-state solution, and you know, I'm, I, I suspect that is the only way through this. One issue, and I'm sure if there was a representative of the Israeli government here, they'd say this: is that two-state solution? Yeah, okay. If one of those states is basically headed up by Hamas. That's not on. And Hamas are more like ISIS than they are like any kind of, you know, freedom fighters that we might imagine in another context. Is that a fair way of looking at this? Not really, Tim, because if you start with the premise of saying Hamas is ISIS, we cannot talk to them. How can we have two states? Then you are already starting on the wrong foot. If you're going to do conflict resolution, if you're going to lead to reconciliation, you don't start by looking at your foe, at your enemy, at your adversary, and say you're all the bad things in the world, I can't talk mm. to you. That does not build any reconciliation, any hope for moving forward. But let me put the answer in a slightly less metaphysical, less philosophical way. Uh, if we look at Hamas, what is Hamas? Hamas is a movement that came about in 1987. It didn't exist before. And every single Israeli and every single Palestinian would tell you that Hamas was supported when it was spawned by Israel. Why? And this is not an attack on Israel. I'm talking history here. Because uh, Israel said at the time, we need to weaken the Palestinian authority of Yasser Arafat and later uh, Mahmoud Abbas in order to make sure that there is no independent Palestinian state. And what a better way to do it than to weaken the secular arm of the Palestinian political community and strengthen the religious arm of the Palestinian uh, community. And that way we can make sure that we will manage the occupation, we will keep all the land, we will build all the settlements, and we will get away with it because Hamas is not interested in a two-state solution the way the Palestinian Authority and the likes of Yasser Arafat were. And by the way, as you know and I know, Yasser Arafat wasn't initially, when he himself was a refugee, interested in a two-state solution, but he came round to it. Yeah. Now, what happened actually, and that's the irony of politics, but it's also the irony of life, is that the the creature that you nurtured or supported or turned uh, your face the other way turned to be your real enemy. And mm -hmm. the Palestinian Authority, which you had weakened for so long, is now unable to actually do anything. And this is where we are at the moment. We've got a militant force that speaks with the language of weapons, and we've got a Palestinian authority that desperately wants a two-state solution, even if one-state solution, which is even more unimaginable, uh, mm. and they can't do it because look at what is everybody saying? Where is the Palestinian authority? The Palestinian authority is knee-deep in corruption and in impotence, sadly brought about by the fact that there was no political progress that could actually give it the oomph, the political muscle it needed in order to do something. So we in the West, and I consider myself now part of the West of Europe, we in the West should measure our words. And this is why I find it a little bit uneasy when people like our prime minister and others go and say, 
We stand with you 100%. You can do whatever you want. And then I'm waiting for the second sentence. And we also stand with all the suffering uh, Palestinians in Gaza who are dying, 90% of whom are not Hamas uh, people. Mm. That second sentence never comes about. And then you tell me why our conspiracy theories uh, a buzz on social media. That is why. Politics is a responsibility. Faith is an obligation. Life is a commitment. If we don't do that, then we have a problem. So Christians have a a big role, uh, you suggest, in trying to be a, a bridge. From what you've just said, um, for a variety of reasons, we've had an Israeli government that it may give lip service to wanting a two-state solution that probably has actually been trying to undermine it. Mm-hmm. And we have leadership, um, so to speak, uh, certainly in form of Hamas in Gaza that definitely doesn't want a two-state solution. Mm-hmm. And, and so... For us, it's about seeking, is it to, for us to pray for God to raise up people on both sides who actually want peace, who actually want to peacefully be reconciled? As we draw our time together uh, to a close, is that what we should be praying for? That's what we should be praying for. But prayer without action is also a little bit amorphous. So I think that we should pray. I always say this. We should pray for peace Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the kingdom. Mm. So in a sense, we should pray for peace, but we should also act. We should have the courage to stand up and speak out and say the truth. One of the things people always tell me, Harry, how do you go about telling all these controversial things? I tell them if they're not controversial, I'm just saying the truth as I see it. It's counterintuitive, maybe. But sometimes uh, going out of the box or doing some lateral thinking is what is necessary in order to unbind a very, very complicated uh, process. And we started this conversation when I told you that I also thank Marcus, the producer, for midwifing our wonderful episode. Maybe Christians could also be midwives, catalysts for peace in that part of the world, which so desperately needs peace. Every Israeli Jew and every Palestinian Arab, be they Muslim or Christian, yearn for peace. The problem is they've lost the way and they don't know how to get there. They lost the way after Oslo. They have definitely lost the way today. Harry, that seems like a as good a place to end as, as any other, that we should be praying for peace and therefore trying to make sure that we understand the situation so that we might actively be those who who seek it harry thank you for your wisdom my pleasure for all that you do in the region and and to help us to understand these desperately complex massive issues that are uh, heavy weighing on all of us thanks for being with us my pleasure and god bless him god bless you each week we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question that you'd like really about this mucky business of politics It might be how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. Well, I'd love to hear from you and attempt an answer at least. So please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. Now this week, Peter has been in touch and he says this. He says, I was recently at a Christian conference where an American speaker addressed maintaining church unity across political divides. Near the end, he said that it was wrong for pastors to bind the conscience of Christians from the pulpit 
in regards to support of any political party. In general, I agree, but I couldn't help wondering if we would have said the same to pastors in 1930s Germany. Do you think there are any policies which a party could adopt which would make them unconscionable for a Christian and make support for that party a pastoral concern? If so, where is the red line? And how can church leaders help Christians to think about and engage with politics in a wise and godly way without being partisan or divisive? Peter, you've asked a question that I often ask myself, and I kind of hope in a very small way that's what we're trying to achieve through um, this podcast and our writings to help Christians just to think and engage with politics and to look at it all um, from a biblical perspective. But absolutely, I think you're right. On the in the main part, I think it's good we should celebrate the fact and be thankful for the fact that in this country, at least, there seem to be Bible believing Christians in all the main parties and in Parliament, this Parliament in Westminster, at least there is fellowship between them. And that is a really positive thing. Um, and I will disagree strongly with some of my brothers and sisters in Christ in different political parties here. But we share that common faith and we're both we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. But obviously, there is a divide at some point we don't want to go over. Um, and so how will we look at this? There's this awful analogy, and I'm sorry to use it, but it seems to work quite well. It is said that if you place a frog into a pan of boiling hot water, they'll jump straight out of it. But if you put them into cool water and then slowly boil it, they'll stay there and then they'll boil alive. It's awful. I'm sorry. But I'm afraid that sometimes might sum up how we as Christians are within the culture in which we're placed. Um, were the Christians in 1930s Germany slowly boiled alive? Did we not see the temperature rising? Did we not see our brothers and sisters there not see uh, the way in which Jewish people and others were being treated? The loss of justice, the loss of equality. Um, and those are things that we should therefore always be doing. We should be keeping an eye on the temperature. We should be holding our politicians to account. We should be gracious towards them. We should be praying for our leaders. Absolutely, we should and we must, but we also should be testing them. Are they treating people made in the image of God, brackets, that's everybody, in that way? Are we holding them to have ultimate and lofty dignity, every single one of them? Are we practicing justice? Are we loving mercy? And if our leaders are not doing that, we have, re have every reason to call them out and to encourage believers to do the same. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Let's end in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for Harry Hagopian, for his wisdom, for the challenging words he said to us in this programme. And we pray especially for our brothers and sisters in Israel and Palestine, in particular in Gaza. They are small in number, but big in impact and they are children of the almighty God. And we actually think of the church in Philadelphia in uh, Revelations 3, that small church, maybe of little strength. And yet, Lord, you made great promises to that church, promises that we know you fulfilled. And we just lift up to you then, our brothers and sisters in Gaza, especially, but across Israel and Palestine, that they would, as Harry said, be a bridge to enable peace, to draw people together, and to bring glory to your name that people might see in the land that you once walked physically, you still work in reality today and that you are the one and the only one in whom there is ultimate hope. We do pray for peace. We pray for those 
who lead Israel. We pray for regular citizens in Israel. We pray for those who lead different communities of Palestinians and for regular Palestinians. We pray for justice, uh, that those who committed awful crimes would not get away with it. We pray for those who are victims, that you would comfort and bless and support them. And we pray for reconciliation. We pray for an end to this conflict and we pray for your name to be held in glory. And uh, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes, which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premier.plus forward slash A Mucky Business. See you soon.